Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford, and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our guest today on the show is Michelle LaLiberty, who is a thematic investment strategist with UBS. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And we are certainly looking forward to hearing your remarks and perspectives around green tech, 5G, health tech, fintech. And we know that technology is such a strong force in both the economy and in the everyday lives of our listeners. But there's a lot of noise and it can be hard to keep up with the technological advances and their impact. So before we dive into our discussion, can you share a bit about your professional background and how it led to your current position today at UBS's Chief Investment Office? Sure. So I've actually spent a large majority of my career right here at UBS. joined as an intern uh, back in 2015 uh, when I was studying economics at UCLA. I actually started out on the branch side of things, so I was sitting on a financial advisor's team. Uh, And once I finished up my CFA, I actually moved out here uh, to New York City to join the research team uh, here in the chief investment office. And the thematic team uh, was really a natural fit for me as an econ person. As much as the research we do here and that we're going to talk about today are centered around these large, overarching, uh, what we call mega trends. So things like demographics uh, and these larger forces that will influence supply and demand uh, in the years ahead. Very interesting. It's certainly very relevant. I know that our team and clients have uh, certainly enjoyed seeing the commentary that your group has put out from time to time around a lot of these big picture themes. And, and one of those as discussed is, is green tech. So I think, I think that's kind of a natural starting place there. For those who are listening who aren't as familiar with that space, what is green tech and where does our firm see it going over the course of the next decade? It's a great question because green tech is quite broad. So I'll just start with defining it uh, from our view. And we really break it into four key focus areas, which would be uh, green energy, green manufacturing, green mobility, and energy infrastructure. And in terms of the outlook, in the short to medium term, we see opportunities in energy efficiency and digitalization, as well as clean power, electrification, and green financing. Over a longer horizon, uh, we see an opportunity for some of the more uh, niche or still developing uh, technologies to gain further traction. So something like large scale and economical carbon capture for just one example. And that already does exist today, but it's still uh, still costly to, to scale that up. And now I'd just discuss, like to discuss the, the current economic environment, because I think I'd be remiss if I talked about the long-term growth trajectory without just giving some of the context on, on the current backdrop. And throughout the last year and, and so far this year, supply chain challenges and higher raw material costs have been headwinds, just like for many industries, right? But green tech is, is certainly no, certainly not exempt, right? Uh, semiconductors, for just one example, are, are a critical component into green tech industries. 
And then we also have a large question mark around policy. Uh, We did get some incremental spending uh, through the bipartisan infrastructure plan, but whether or not we do get more uh, from the Biden administration, that's still hard to say. But with that said, though, demand for renewable energy and for green tech more broadly has remained quite strong. Uh, And the economics are still compelling despite what happens uh, in the policy realm. So before I wrap up here, I'll just put some numbers around that comment that helps kind of display the the advancements that we've seen in recent years. So the IEA, the International Energy Agency, estimates, and of course estimates can range, but the IEA estimates that $1 spent on wind and solar deployment today results in about four times more electricity generation than that same dollar spent on the same technologies 10 years ago. So the economic case here is quite compelling. And while we do have these near-term considerations, and again, that policy question mark, we do still believe that you know, given these fallen costs and the economic case we made here, uh, we do remain quite positive on the growth trajectory for these industries. So before we get into these other areas, because I think this is relevant for all of these areas, whether it's green tech, 5G, health tech, how important is fiscal policy and support for these initiatives? Are these going to be trends that are going to succeed no matter what Congress or an administration decides to get behind? Or does it, is it really dependent upon how much of an investment we make from a fiscal policy perspective to really catapult these areas further? Yeah, I would say that policy is nice to have. I wouldn't say it's need to have, uh, or at least not as much as in the past. Given the the cost declines that we've seen, a lot of these companies aren't as reliant on policy. And the second part of that, I would say, is that regardless of what happens here in the U.S., we are seeing pretty strong policy initiatives ex-U.S., And this is truly a global story. So I think first part of that is, again, nice to have. It would absolutely accelerate the transition. It's not as critical as it was in years past. And we also still have that positive support ex-US as well. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. And you brought up uh, the concept of sustainable investing. I know it maybe loosely fall under the umbrella of green tech, but just with respect to technology and the role it plays in addressing sustainable investing. It seems like every week we hear about innovations in areas like energy and carbon management. Even in our day-to-day, we see more Teslas on the road and more information coming out around solar and wind management and carbon management and solutions. So what kinds of green technology should we expect to see in the future? And how will those developments really move the needle on both that ecological conservation aspect of it and the investing component of that as well, as it relates to the whole sustainability dynamic. Sure. And I think this is a, it's a great point that, that you raised because the underlying technology that powers these industries is an opportunity in itself, right? So I know I just briefly mentioned semiconductors earlier, but that's really just one part of it. And digitalization is a broad term. But it includes things like smart home and automation. We often think about technologies that are going to come in 10 years or some of these things that are really exciting. But even something as simple as lighting systems, right, that can turn off 
a light if no one is in the building. These are things that have been around, but they're not ubiquitous yet, right? We still can deploy these in other areas and help reduce emissions even further. And buildings are a pretty large contributor to emissions. Again, the IEA expects actually that about two to two and a half percent of existing residential buildings will have to be retrofitted every year. So we do believe that we're likely to see an increased focus on connected uh, devices uh, and the Internet of Things, which allows for real-time control and which can help reduce inefficiencies through better remote management. And another thing that we expect to see more of in the future is, again, I mentioned earlier, but carbon capture uh, and sequestration. And again, that already exists, but it's still expensive to scale up. So as this becomes more economical, you know, quite similar to the story I was telling earlier that we've seen in clean power, as these costs decline, that can be another way to reduce emissions for these more energy intensive manufacturing processes that are that are currently hard to green, if you will. Yeah, no, that's it's very interesting. And and kind of in switching gears here to another topic that you guys have written extensively about, which is 5G. We have a client who has been talking to us about, because it's this industry that he's in and involved with, and uh, he's been telling us about 5G for years now, and just, I mean, how much of a game changer that could be for all different types of applications, but even specifically autonomous driving, for example. And I recently got an upgrade on my iPhone here a few weeks ago, and I now have the little 5G symbol up in the top right-hand corner of my phone. And... I think for the listener, it'd be helpful for you to kind of explain the 5G space, where it could go in the future, what could the other applications for it be, because it makes the toggling of, of my screen quicker on my phone, but it seems like the internet connection is still operating at the same speed, certainly a lot better than where it was you know, five years ago. But just tell us more about the 5G space, why it's significant, what should clients be, be looking at with respect to 5G in the, in the years to come? Sure. So we really see 5G as an enabler of future industries. And I think that you're getting to that in your in your question, right? How What type of uh, industries will 5G enable? And it is designed with an extended capacity, high speed, and lower latency. So if you think about something like autonomous vehicles, if we get to a world where vehicles are driving themselves, these vehicles need to essentially communicate with one another. And I think we can all agree in this instance that latency is not really an option, right? You do not want your vehicle to experience a lag or a glitch as it's driving you around. Another example of this would be something like remote surgery. Uh, again, this is something that's you know, far out. This is something that we are saying we're pounding the table on now. But if you could get access to a surgeon who's an expert in what you need, but maybe sitting in another state... This is another instance where where latency is not going to be an option. And I will just say, though, uh, in terms of more recently and you know what should investors be looking for, a couple of things to watch in the in the current environment. 5G has certainly seen a lot of headlines recently. Airlines have voiced some concern in the U.S. over 5G airways near airports. But the large carriers are working with the airlines to come to an agreement. So we are confident that this will eventually be resolved. But the other thing... To note here, though, it's just that some of the tower companies who are quite relevant for 5G are also quite sensitive to interest rates. So much of that you know, damage is already occurring or at least starting to be priced in by the market. Uh, but these two items will be key to watch uh, in the months ahead. 
Well, your points around someone being able to perform a very complicated surgery, even you know, states away, is just mind-blowing. And if the fact that whether it's autonomous driving or surgery, we could probably spend an entire episode just on 5G alone and the possibilities around that. So that that's very interesting. But I have to now talk about something that I don't know as much about, even though it's been in the news quite a bit especially around Facebook and the direction that it's deciding to go in with respect to the metaverse. What is your take on the metaverse and how it's going to change the AI and, and digital sphere? Is it just uh, an important topic for gamers and those who are really interested in virtual reality? Or do you think that there's going to be some real life applications where people like you and me are, are having meetings via a, a metaverse in the future? as opposed to whether it's Zoom or Skype or a phone call or whatnot. Tell us about your thoughts around the metaverse and where you think that's going to go in the years to come. Sure. And uh, I'm glad you bring it up because there is certainly a lot of excitement uh, around the metaverse lately. It seems like all of a sudden uh, everyone was talking about the metaverse. Uh, We saw a Super Bowl commercial about it. And it is hard to say how quickly or how quick the adoption curve will be for something like the metaverse or something like business meetings. But for our listeners, what we mean by this concept is, imagine you put on an AR or VR headset and there's a little avatar of yourself. And while you're still sitting on your couch in that helmet, that little avatar of you walks into an office and it meets with your colleagues who are also represented by avatars. So think of it like a real life Sims game almost. For investors, I would say that the short answer to this question, though, is that it's still very early. So we're in the phase where companies might be investing in the metaverse, but they're not exactly seeing revenue from it yet. Uh, What we're seeing so far is investment into the computing infrastructure that's required. So things like data centers, the actual VR, AR devices, semiconductors, again. So these underlying components can be kind of one way to tap into the the opportunity here. But overall, there's still a very high degree of uncertainty about who the winners will ultimately be. Well, you brought up Super Bowl commercials earlier. And when it comes to the metaverse, I feel like I'm Larry David in that commercial where they kind of go throughout history of the greatest inventions, whether it was the wheel or our forks and knives or an MP3 player and, and Larry David throughout each one of these innovations is saying how dumb of an idea this is. This is never going to work. And now, you know, I can't remember, I think it was maybe around, maybe it was cryptocurrency or, or whatnot that that was now he was saying was the next dumb idea. I feel like I'm in the same camp when it comes to the metaverse. I don't get it and understand it outside of you know, maybe people wanting to have a neat experience with video games. But what do I know? Maybe we will be having these meetings with avatars here in, in several years' time. But uh, I'm, maybe I'm just more old-fashioned and preferring the, the face-to-face kind of interactions. But that's just me. So it'll be interesting to see where, where things go in that regard. Outside of technology around how people interact and green tech, what about with respects to healthcare? I mean, obviously, the past two years with the COVID pandemic happening, the need for digitalized healthcare is is more comprehensive healthcare technology. It's stronger than ever. You touched on it with 5G and how that application can kind of seep over into healthcare going forward. But what problems is health tech addressing and what changes in healthcare will we see over the course of the next decade? And how big is this from a growth standpoint uh, and and where it could end up with respect to the overall market share of, of the whole healthcare industry? 
Sure. So I'll just, I'll start with the first part of that question or the, the problems that health tech is addressing. And I think to answer this, it's important to take a, a step back and think about demographics. Even despite the pandemic, the world population is still aging, especially in developed markets. In developed markets, it's estimated that there will be more people over the age of 60 than under the age of 25 in just the next decade or so. So this is going to increase demand for healthcare services even further, and the system is already strained. So how do you improve efficiency and productivity in order to meet this demand? And deploying tech is one way to do so. And to be clear, we don't expect your doctor to be a robot anytime soon. But what we do expect is a simplification or automation of time-consuming and mundane tasks that can help free up more time for doctors. So, for example, uh, during COVID-19, we saw robots being used to feed patients in short-staffed hospitals. They were really just delivering food. Then something like a wearable device that could help tra- help people track their health outside of a doctor's office. So, you know, for someone who needs consistent monitoring of vital signs, uh, a wearable device can do that, send real-time data back to a doctor or to a physical location, all the while alleviating the need for that individual to actually go to that physical, crowded, probably busy doctor's office. And the last thing I'll end with here is that health tech can actually expand the reach of healthcare services as well. So think about something like a very rural areas or emerging markets that say the nearest hospital might be quite far away uh, and costly to get to, right? So now things like telemedicine can help that individual reach care where they may have uh, decided to either forgo it before or it has been very costly or far away for them to actually access it. And health tech is really, really quite broad. Uh, there's a lot of exciting innovations here, but I'll just end just quickly addressing your, your last question here in terms of market size. And we do estimate markets linked to the theme to be worth about $100 billion, but newer opportunities could expand this quite a bit. They're just still uncertain as to how quickly and how, how large they grow. Well, you brought up the whole telehealth dynamic, and I had never used that service before for either for myself or our family and kids. And it wasn't until the pandemic where we were actually able to consult with a doctor via Zoom and and to have some type of you know, diagnosis made or, or some type of consultation. And just the ease of that and the convenience of it was pretty incredible. The fact that you didn't have to get in the car or, or get young kids in the car for that matter and, and get them to a doctor's office and wait to see the doctor and whatnot. I mean, the efficiencies around that were pretty remarkable. And that's, that's a development that I've just experienced in the last you know, couple of years. So it would be interesting to see how much more prevalent that becomes in the, in the years to come. And then is, is there, I would imagine that these developments, right, technology, while it's not always perfect, it, it certainly overall makes life much more efficient in that regard. So I would also think that it would help with respect to the rising cost of healthcare. And do you think that the developments in health tech are going to remedy those dynamics of rising costs? And do you think that, uh, that that could help curtail some of the cost aspect of healthcare going forward and make that more easier to manage? I think this is almost kind of two, two parts to this question, because first, you have the forces that could help us reduce costs by improving efficiency, as you just mentioned. But on the other hand, you have new treatments in certain segments of the healthcare market, like genetic therapies, that are quite costly because of how advanced they are. And I'll dive this 
dive into this in, in just a bit. First, for health tech, again, uh, you know, I know I just discussed this a little bit already, but something like you know, remote monitoring could potentially lower the cost you know, for that individual who had to go into a costly physical location prior and doing it quite often. But now they can, you know, again, use that remote monitoring to alleviate that need. But shifting to the, the second part of this that I mentioned in regards to the high cost of treatment for some of these newer therapies, it's important to remember that some, for something like genetic therapies, these are often targeting diseases that required ongoing treatment before. So I won't sugarcoat it, right? The price tags can be pretty staggering. Some of these treatments can cost upwards of $2 million for a one-time treatment. But again, we, we have to compare it with the cost of ongoing treatment for a patient. So many of the, the chronic illnesses that genetic therapies target, these patients are spending thousands of dollars consistently for ongoing treatment, whether it be you know, every few weeks or monthly, maybe daily. While genetic therapies are typically, again, looking to cure what was previously uncurable rather than provide an ongoing treatment. Even still, though, we are likely to see continued you know, political efforts here, especially in the U.S., around things like drug pricing. So this is all still, still very much an evolving, an evolving picture. Yeah, it certainly is. And then lastly, I wanted to talk to you about fintech. And the financial services industry, frankly, has been hopeless when it comes to, to technology over the last couple of decades. It's gotten a lot better recently. But I saw recently that uh, we can still, even to this day, fly money to Europe faster than we can send it there electronically. And we still deal with things like two days to settle trades and the day or two lag it takes to transfer money around from one institution to another. So can you just start off by just talking about what fintech is and maybe what it, what it is not so that people can you know, really understand the landscape of, of that, that dynamic and where those things could go uh, going forward? It's a great question. And when we say fintech, we're not just talking about the new disruptive players. We are talking about some of the incumbents too. But to your point, this is provided that they have a clear fintech strategy and not all of them do. So banks and large financials have been investing in tech for years now. And again, to to your point, it's it's taken some time. It's not necessarily new, but it is necessary for them to stay competitive. But just because an incumbent or a large bank has an online banking portal where you can sign in and check your statement, that's not necessarily a fintech in our eyes. And we formally define it as a convergence of financial and technological innovation that facilitates banking and financial services. But it's really about digitalizing finance. Building on that example I gave of online banking, while we wouldn't consider that fintech, we would consider mobile apps for smartphones that have a superior user interface as fintech. So just say, for example, you know, an app that you can use to pay your friends if you don't have any cash on you. And finally, when it comes to investing in fintech, we do just like to break it into what we call verticals and horizontals. Verticals are the sub-industries. So things like insurance tech, payment facilitators, mortgage tech, Whereas horizontals are the key underlying technologies that are driving the transformation. So that would include things like cloud, blockchain, and big data analytics. So that's really the the high-level view or how we approach fintech. But I'll just pause there and turn it back to you. 
Well, with the few minutes uh, that we have remaining, Michelle, I just I, I couldn't help but bite on the bait that you dangled earlier about your background and, and understanding demographic trends, right? Especially as it pertains to these bigger picture areas over the next decade or two. But also, you had mentioned that you know the fact that the developed world is an aging population. I think we've all seen data that suggests that Europe is losing about half a million people a year due to an aging demographic. Japan's losing about a million people a year. The United States is growing at about 1% per year with respect to its population. And I saw recently that within the last year or two, the millennial generation, those in their late 20s, 30s, and even early 40s now, now make up the largest demographic within the United States. They've they've overtaken the baby boomers. And understandably, this is a a demographic that's entering peak earning years. It's having families and and having kids and spending money, which tends to be the the drivers overall of of our economy. So just lastly, can you just talk about the demographic trends that, that you see largely and whether that's a positive or or negative dynamic, really then kind of how it pertains to some of these bigger picture themes that you've discussed and, and the importance that they'll that they'll have for these younger for these younger clients in the years to come. Sure. Thanks. And I think you hit the nail right on the head there. And and we do say that fintech's at an inflection point because key drivers for both the demand uh, and the supply side of the equation. So on the supply side, we're seeing all of these new services and technological advancement. But on the demand side, and this really goes to your point here, it's no secret, right, that younger consumers, millennials, Gen Z, they're digital natives, myself included. They grew up in the digital age. They're used to convenience. They're used to doing things right from their phone. And now millennials are entering or are already in, again, to your point, their peak earnings years. And that means they're going to be looking for financial services. And they're also becoming a larger part of the consumer cohort. And outside of just digital, we do expect millennials to drive demand for services that are personalized, that can be a variety of their needs, all while being incredibly convenient. Uh, convenience is key. So overall, we do think that this bodes well for digital fintech services that can provide this type of experience. Well, that's fascinating. And uh, Michelle, I just know we could probably spend all day talking about these topics and more, but I just can't tell you again how much we appreciate your time and joining us on the show today. And, and I just want to remind the audience that if you have any questions for either our team or, or Michelle and anyone on her team around any of these areas that we talked about, we're happy to discuss further. But uh, thank you again for uh, joining us, Michelle. And uh, thank you all for listening to our uh, Lighthouse podcast this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Sustainable investing strategies aim to incorporate environmental, social, and governance considerations into investment process and portfolio construction. Strategies across geographies and styles approach ESG analysis and incorporate the findings in a variety of ways. The returns on portfolios consisting primarily of sustainable investments may be lower or higher than portfolios where ESG factors, exclusions, or other sustainability issues are not considered, and the investment opportunities available to such portfolios may also differ. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc., nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokered services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokered services are separate and distinct different material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business and to carefully read the agreements and disclosures we provide them about the products and services we offer. For more information, please review the following PDF document at ubs.com slash relationship summary. 
UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. Mm-hmm.